Well, good morning and greetings to all in Jesus' name. Well, this is the time of year when we consider and think about the advent of our Lord Jesus into the world. And I thought I would speak about that this morning. And the title of the message is Jesus Christ is Come in the Flesh. We'll take a bit of a break from our um, study in the book of Daniel. And speak about this uh, matter of Jesus Christ coming in the flesh. My message this morning is not uh, necessarily just about the details of his birth, but rather the great central truth that God came in the flesh. The glorious news that the angels... Uh, proclaim there to the shepherds, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill to men. It was indeed good news in that a Savior had come. A Savior is born unto you this day in the city of David. And that was truly uh, glorious news. But part of what made it glorious and was not fully revealed necessarily in that statement, but the fact that it was actually God who came in the flesh. And that uh, truth is repeated many times in the scriptures. In Romans chapter 1, Paul addressed his letter to the Romans this way. He said, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. So we have here Paul addressing both parts of this. It says, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. So Christ the Lord, the Son of God, came down into this world and took on flesh. It tells us in Hebrews that he didn't take on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. And that uh, seed of Abraham has reference to the fact that he took on humanity. And of course it was of the seed of Abraham and it was of the seed of David. He was in that lineage, but the... But the overarching thing was simply the fact that he took on him the nature of humanity. The great God of heaven 
came down and took on flesh. In the epistle of John, he uh, makes a very clear statement there. Uh, Maybe we could turn to there. We'll have a handful of different passages this morning that we'll look at. But in, in the first epistle of John, chapter 4, in verse 2 he says, Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And the fact that we had a baptism here several weeks ago, and in the baptism um, procedure there, we asked the question, can you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh? And they repeat, uh, yes, I believe, I confess that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. Now that may seem a little bit of a strange uh, concept, well, it's not really strange because we're very familiar with it, and yet sometimes it sort of goes over our head. What does it really mean that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh? And the short answer would be what it's really saying at the heart of it is that God came and took on humanity. Jesus Christ the Son of God, came to this world, was made of the likeness of men, and took on him the nature of Abraham. And it is that um, fact that is so central to our faith and our understanding of God is that God came in the flesh. Now there are a number of other passages. Um, John in his writings in the gospel and also in the epistles, was very clear on this point. In the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 14, he says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This word, and he had spent the first part of that chapter there talking about how in the beginning was the word And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14 he says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. This very God came down, was made flesh, and he dwelt among us. He was with us. And then in the epistle of 1 John he says how They witness this word, this eternal life, and he said, which our hands did handle of the word of life. They could actually touch him and and interact with this eternal word that came to the earth and was made flesh. So I believe it does us good this morning to just meditate on that and ponder that this God was made flesh. And it's a a truth that has been argued over the the ages uh, since then and 
There are many people who deny it. There are many people who refuse to believe it even after having considered it because, as the scripture says, it is a great mystery. And that mystery, uh, we think of a mystery as something that is unsolved. And we don't, you know, it's, it's beyond getting all the facts together. And while there is that sense, even in the scripture, it's interesting that in almost every case where that word mystery is used, it is indicating that it is now being made known. And here are the details. It's no longer just something out there that you can't get a grasp on, but here are the details. This is why. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, he says, And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. And there in one verse, he takes the entire scope of Christ's life and ministry and and puts it into one package there. This mystery of godliness... God was manifest in the flesh, and it started when he was born of a virgin Mary and was wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And then he was preached unto the Gentiles. There were many in the world who believed on him, and he was received up into glory. It uh, doesn't even mention particularly there his crucifixion and resurrection, but it is embodied in that whole picture there. I'd like for you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, there is a great revelation of who this Jesus is. Starting in verse 5, we'll read there. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. Now in those two verses, 6 and 7, we have a great theological truth that is, as I said before, it's, it's disputed and some refuse to believe it, but it's very clear here, it says who... Speaking of Jesus, being in the form of God, that term there, form of God, if you study it out in the Greek, uh, that form is 
a part or a representation of God. It's not just an image. You, in order to be in the form, the very substance of God, you must be God to be in the substance of God in the sense that it's here in this passage. Who being in the form or substance of God thought it not robbery to be equal with God or he, it was not something to be grasped after but made himself of no reputation. And in the Greek that has the, the direct sense of emptying. So we have here the great emptying of Christ, of what he was, laying aside his glory, laying aside his position in heaven, and coming, making himself of no reputation, great emptying of himself, and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. That means he took on flesh. He took on him the seed of Abraham. Not the nature of angels, but the seed of Abraham. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. As they were reading the account this morning of... uh, Jesus being born in a manger, or he was born and he was wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. If you think about what was actually taking place here is that God, in the form of Jesus Christ, emptied himself and was made in the likeness of men, began life as a baby, and when he was born, they wrapped him in swaddling clothes. And if you think about what swaddling clothes are, they are a long, generally was a long piece of fabric that was wound around and around and around and tightly wraps up the child, for warmth and and for comfort or whatever. To me, when I think of that, it, I think of restriction. Just can't move. Can't. Oh, it must be terribly uncomfortable <laughs> because we like to be able to move. But the very picture there of Christ as the son wrapped in swaddling clothes, is a very picture of him emptying himself and taking on humanity and just being completely restricted to the nature of mankind. Very interesting picture there. This God came and took on flesh. It was prophesied that they would call his name Jesus. And it also said that he would be called Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. God with us. 
Now, there are various names and titles that Jesus uh, took while he was on the earth. And there are two that I would like to talk about this morning or consider in the context of him coming here. Uh, This son of God is the one term and the other is the son of man. Now, he used both of those terms, son of God, and he used the term son of man. Now, many times when um, the term son of God was used, it was used by others who were speaking of him or writing about him, as Paul did here in Romans chapter 1, he declared to be the Son of God with power. Well, what do those terms mean? Well, there is a sense in which when you use the term Son, you are speaking of a a very clear and literal uh, Son or a descendant of your Father. There's also the use of that term in a more general sense where it just simply means in the likeness of or after a fashion. And there are terms such as, I believe it was Barnabas, was called the son of consolation. Uh, He wasn't literally a child of consolation, but that's how he was known. A son of consolation. The... uh, was it uh, James and John were called the sons of thunder? I'm not sure where that came from, but an illustration of how the term son could be used. There were some men who were known as sons of Belial or of the devil. Uh, they were like unto their father in that sense. So there is that sense in which The term, for example, son of man, on the one hand, it it very literally means that you have taken on flesh. You have the nature or form of Adam. You are a descendant of Adam. You have taken on humanity, which was very true of the Lord Jesus. He was the son of man as having taken on the nature of Abraham. He was of the seed of David, and so on. There's also the sense in which Son of Man represents uh, being made in the likeness of, or after the form of, and so on. And so Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man. Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Was the question he asked his disciples. Well, if you look in the Old Testament where the use of that son of man, you will find that there were two prophets, primarily Ezekiel. In his writings throughout the book of Ezekiel, you will find that term uh, quite a number of times where he is called the son of man. And the very first reference, and actually quite a few times, The term or title is given to Ezekiel by an angel or a heavenly being, or the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel saying, Son of man, and then a prophecy would follow. And in the first instance, it was actually 
uh, after a vision he had there, then this angel spoke unto him and said, Son of man. When you turn to Daniel in one place, I believe it's in Daniel chapter 8, where an angel speaking to Daniel again refers to Daniel as son of man. And I thought it was quite interesting that that term, son of man, when applied to the prophet Ezekiel and of Daniel, it was spoken by an angelic being. But then you turn to the New Testament and Jesus applies this term to himself, son of man. And I believe in in the use of that term, Jesus was clearly identifying himself as having taken on humanity. As it says of the seed of David. Now the title, son of God... Well, let me just finish this on the Son of Man. When it is applied to Jesus, it is very specific. It's a specific title also. It could be a general title in that there was also, for example, Ezekiel and Daniel were both referred to as Son of Man. And all of us today, in one sense, we are sons of men. We are just simply of the seed of Adam, and it's a term that could be applied to any, any man. But many times in the scripture it does specifically apply to Jesus Christ. And then we have the title Son of God. And that is repeated many, many times. Uh, in, in the first uh, verse I mentioned there in Romans chapter 1 where Paul said he was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. We're going to look at various passages, but the first one I'd like for us to turn to is in Matthew 25. Before I read this passage, I should say a bit more about this title, Son of God. There is a sense in which that also can be a general title because it tells us in uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, that as many as believed on him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. So we have that privilege to be sons of God, sons and daughters of God. But there were many times when it was specifically applied to Jesus Christ as the Son of God. It's generally capitalized, and it's very specifically referring to Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He was the Son of God, as in a literal son. There was a relationship there. 
But here in Matthew 25, we have a very interesting, I'm sorry, is it 25? I think I put that down incorrectly. It's in chapter 26. Yes, chapter 26, when Jesus is on trial before the high priest and the, and the council there. And we have a very uh, interesting connection between these two terms, Son of Man and Son of God. And let's uh, consider that here in Matthew 26, verse 63, and Jesus held his peace, and the high priest answered and said unto him, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now let's just stop and consider before we read further. Here we have Jesus on trial, and Jesus, as you know, had gone through his ministry there, and some believed on him, and some did not, and some saw him as the promised Messiah, the Savior of Israel. Others thought he was a blasphemer and was usurping a place that he shouldn't have, and, and so there was a great controversy. And so here he is now on trial before the high priest and the Sanhedrin there. And the high priest is asserting his authority as the highest uh, authority in the, in the religious realm there. He said, I adjure thee. It's like, I, I command you. I am... I am asserting my authority that you must tell us. And he calls upon God as a witness. He says, I adjure thee by the living God that thou tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. Now this was very specific. Christ was a title. They expected a Christ. It was prophesied they all expected a Christ at some point. This Christ would be the Savior of Israel. He would be their Redeemer. He would be their Promised One. He would would be the one who would usher in a new age of... of, uh, of a life that they had long wanted. That new age where all would be peace, the world would be filled with righteousness, and truth would triumph. That was their hope. That was their great desire. And so they were expecting a Christ. And it had been applied to this Jesus but many did not believe. 
that this Jesus was the Christ. And so, hence the question here. Tell us whether thou be the Christ, the Son of God. And they also made a connection with this Christ being the Son of God. But they did not believe that this Jesus was the Son of God. They they refused to believe, many. Some did believe, but not the high priest. So here was Jesus' answer then. In verse 64, Jesus saith unto them, Thou hast said. And that we may kind of gloss over that in English here as it's written, but what he's simply saying is, you have said it, as acknowledging that you have correctly spoken. You, it's, it's your words. You, you've said it. And then he says, Nevertheless, I say unto you, Hereafter shall ye see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. Well, there Jesus inserts his title as Son of Man. He had been asked whether he's the Son of God. And he answers by saying, you've said it. You, or, you know, the, the implied was that you have you correctly said it. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power. Well, this was a very specific reference to the prophecy in Daniel chapter 7, which these men knew very well. And that prophecy was that this was in Daniel's vision. He saw a throne and he saw